the transmitter. You're listening to Synaptic. This is our podcast that investigates the people, the science, and the challenges of autism research and the greater neuroscience space. You're listening to episode six of Synaptic. My name is Brady Huggett, and I'm the host of this show. For this one, let's start in the city of Minneapolis in Minnesota. It's a mid-sized city, population of about 425,000 in 2022. That makes it smaller than Milwaukee, but it's bigger than, say, New Orleans. It's also bigger than St. Paul, the twin city in Minnesota that sits across the Mississippi River from Minneapolis. Now, in South Minneapolis, there is a four-way intersection where 38th Street meets Chicago Avenue. Back in 2019, there was nothing all that notable about it. There were the four corners of the intersection, a Speedway gas station, and a retail spot called Cup Foods, which sold everything from milk to stamps to phones. Now, you may already know where this is going. Today, this intersection is known as George Perry Floyd Square, because on May 25th in 2020, more than three years ago now, a black man named George Floyd was killed by police at this intersection outside the Cup Foods. It was a particularly gruesome exhibit of police brutality against black people, and his murder set off waves of protests in the U.S. There was intense media coverage and political unrest and a deep racial reckoning in America, in a country that has already had many of those moments, actually. George Floyd's murder became a new focal point in the Black Lives Matter movement, and the reverberations of his murder are still being felt in this country today. But for our purposes, for this podcast... The killing of George Floyd also set off a period of personal introspection for Brian Boyd. That's today's guest, Brian Boyd. When George Floyd was murdered and the country went through a convulsive self-searching around race, Brian Boyd had his own version of this. He took a long look at his life, both personal and professional, and made some changes. And we talked about that in this podcast. We also talked about him growing up in tiny Broadnax, Virginia, and how his parents met. And we talked about his time in Kansas, leading the Juniper Gardens Children's Project, which helps to improve care and the education of children. All of that and more in the next hour. So I recorded Brian on August 17th, 2023, in his office in the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This was a week before classes started, so Chapel Hill, which is very much a college town, was filled with parents dropping off kids and taking them out for meals, all those things that happen on campus right before a school year starts. I set up the mics on a table in Brian's office, and we sat across from each other and started in. So let's pick it up here, where I'm asking Brian how long he's been at Chapel Hill. So here's your synaptic episode with Brian Boyd, starting right now. This is not, I think, this is not your your first time at Chapel Hill. This is not my first time at UNC. Yeah. Right after my doctoral program at the University of Florida, I came to Chapel Hill to do my postdoc. 
And that was in 2005. Uh Uh-huh, okay. So I was here, I was at UNC from 2005 to 2017, and then transitioned to the University of Kansas, and I just got back to UNC last last July. Yeah, I noticed, looks like your diplomas are not hanging on the wall (laughs) here yet. Yeah, that's part of a bigger story. Um, Actually, the Frank Porter Graham Child Development Institute, where I'm now the interim director, we're going to be moving to a new space. So there was really no reason to unpack because we hopefully we'll be moving sometime in mid-November to late December. So So when you came back, you said, I won't put everything up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I've only recently become interim director in January. So that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But uh, I think I did. So I've done some research. You are an East Coast person, right? I think you're at least you were born on the East Coast. I grew up in Southern Virginia in uh-huh. a small rural town. It probably called Broadnecks, Virginia. Broadnecks. Broadnecks. Yeah. It probably has a population size of around five or six hundred people. One uh-huh. of those towns with no stoplight. Very small. Uh, very small. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, uh, h- how is it that your family was there? Did they go back generations or move there or something like that? Yeah, so it's where my mom's side of the family is. My dad's side of the family is from North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, but my mom's side of the family grew up there, and so they do go back generations, um, at least as far as I'm aware of sort of living there. And so it's interesting because my mom and my dad actually are part of big families, which isn't um, atypical in Southern black families. So my mom was one of 10 siblings. She had. Um, one of 10 children. So she, there's nine siblings. Nine siblings. Yeah. And my dad had 13 siblings. So he's one of 14 children. Um, and so, but my most of my mom's siblings migrated to Richmond, Virginia, which is a larger city, the yeah. capital of Virginia. But my mom and three of her brothers stayed in that same town and sort of grew up there and raised their kids there to some, to, you know, for the most part. So that's where I grew up. Is she there still? My mom is still there. Um, and my youngest brother, I have three younger brothers. My youngest brother is also still there. So she's been her whole life has been Broadnecks. She spent her whole life there in Broadnecks. That's pretty she's amazing. Tried to get me to come back. It won't happen. <laughs> I do go visit, um, but yeah, she spent her whole life there. And then, how did she meet your your father? Oh, she met my father when she was out at a nightclub. I do believe in having Broadnecks? some fun. Um, no, actually, I do believe in North Carolina. Ah, okay. She had traveled to North Carolina. Because um, Broadnax is only about 15 minutes from the North Carolina border. Uh-huh. So it's, you know, a lot of people come to North Carolina yeah. um, for sort of a city experience or go up to Richmond, Virginia for experience. So that's how she met my dad. Do, do you know what part of North Carolina? I don't remember what part of North Carolina she met him in. Um, but she was young. My parents had me when they were young. My mom was a teen mother, so uh. she walked across um, her high school graduation stage, um, eight months pregnant with me. You uh, were the first in the family. I was the first in the family, yep. Okay, okay so she meets him at a club or something yep. in North Carolina, yep. gets pregnant, comes home, finishes high school. Finishes high school. Were they married? They weren't married at the time. Then yep. they got married. They got married later. Yep, much later in life. Actually, the, my parents officially got married when I was in college. And I said, why did you decide to get married yeah. now? You spent all this time. It's like, oh, we just decided to do it. So That was years later. So Years they, later. Your siblings, that's the same father. Same, yeah. They same kept dad. It, but did he move to Broadnecks? He did, yeah. So okay. my, Yeah, both my parents lived there. 
Um, I ended up coming back to North Carolina, North Carolina because my father passed away. So he passed away in December of 2021. Oh. And so that led to me moving back to North Carolina to be back closer to my family. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I guess we'll get to that. Yeah. So in your family, there's three of you. There, um, I have three younger siblings, so there's four of us total. You're the oldest. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So then you're growing up in Broadnax, this town of 500 people or so. That's right. No stoplight, as you said. What did, your, what did your parents do for work? Uh, Blue-collar jobs. So my dad worked in construction. One of those stories where he worked himself up to management yeah. by the time he retired from the position. Uh, my, dad, my mom stayed at home for a little bit, and then she did various odd jobs. She, a lot of, she's a very good cook, yeah. so she cooked at a lot of different stores and, and factories in town. So different blue-collar odd jobs. So, so I, I always find this fascinating. So when you're growing up, yeah. and we look at you now, right, which you've, you have these advanced degrees, did you know that you wanted that life? Did you want an academic life? Had you seen an academic life? How did you get on your path? Yeah, that's a good question. I, didn't, I hadn't really seen an academic life. Neither my parents went to college. My mom made different attempts to um, finish nursing school because one of her closest friends became a nurse. And, you know, it just became harder as she had um, my siblings. Yeah. Um, but I remember in first grade, and I, I had a teacher, and I was like, I don't know, I decided I wanted to go to college. I remember coming home and telling my parents that I wanted to go to college. And they said, great, that's wonderful. Uh, so what I always say is that what I had were supportive parents. So anything that I wanted to do, I wanted to join the band, I wanted to play tennis, they would always find a way for me to participate in those activities. Um, and so they were always supportive of anything I wanted to do. They were the kind of parents that also showed up to PTA meetings and mm. met with the teachers. So they were always actively engaged in my education, although they didn't have one. Yeah. They never said to me, you have to go to college or we want you to go to college. Or, 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 or we those, don't want you to go or to college. Or we yeah. don't want yeah. you to go to college. Um, they just always supported the sort of the activities and endeavors that I pursued. So that is it safe to say that they, you know, you come home in first grade and say, I want to go to college, that they saw the, the value in it and were like, okay, this is a good path for him. I mean, let's support him in that. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, they didn't probably say it in those words. They were just kind of like, oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they were very proud of me when I went off to college. Um, you know, I could see it in their faces. I'm very happy that I did it. And, and so I think, again, I think they were just really supportive throughout all of my schooling and all of my learning. So, and, and proud of the accomplishments. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So as you're growing up, you're the firstborn, you're the oldest. I am the firstborn. Yeah. Um, and you have already decided in first grade that you want to go to college, but did you have any idea of what that study would be? You know, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be, who knows? I'm going to be an English professor. Who knows? I had no idea. I had various thoughts around what I wanted to be, um, medical doctor, teacher, all kinds of things. I had no real idea. I thought, when I went to college, I thought, well, maybe I'll do medicine. Not because I think I wanted to be a medical doctor, but I thought, well, I'm going to college. I should get something out of it. Found out chemistry wasn't my strong suit. Mm. Um, so that sort of stopped that pathway. But I was also um, taking a lot of psychology courses and education courses. So, you know, I saw some alternatives um, to some degree. Mm. So, but um, I'm also just curious. I also, I mean, I grew up in a small town. Yeah. Um, what did you, what did you do to, you know, in, in Broadnax? What did you do? To, how did you spend your days? Yeah, I 
you know, <laughs> you know, because most of my life there, you know, I was in school, you know, that obviously occupied a lot of my time and then spent it with friends after school. I mean, you know, it's just the interesting things you do in a small town, right? You So there are always, you hang out in parking lots, yeah. right? You, you know, we, you have house parties if you yeah. want to hang out with your friends. So um, you don't... There are different ways you find to or, to um, occupy yourself. Um, I spent a lot of time at my friend's house, you know, in, in that small town. You know, once we were able to drive, we would go to the big city, if you will. We would drive to Richmond or other places to to be able to have access to the city life, yeah. if you will. But yeah. we always migrated back to, to home and just spending time with each other. So. Did you spend a lot of time on a bicycle? I, so... I am not very athletic, and I didn't ride a bicycle until very late in life. And I will tell you, I was probably like nine or ten. Oh. And what prompted me to ride it was my younger brother started riding one. And I was like, well, shit, if he's yeah. riding a bicycle, I should learn how you're, to you're ride a bicycle. <laughs> you were embarrassed into it. I was yeah. embarrassed into it. Um, but I know that seems like something you would do in a small town. But it's a small town, but I lived, um, you know, one of the things about small towns is often they don't have great roads they don't yeah. have sidewalks or yeah. bicycling yeah. so you you're in the road and often you're on a gravel road even back then there weren't a lot of paved roads and so it wasn't easy terrain for riding a bicycle and navigating over i mean you could do it within your yard but it wasn't a way to go see your friends and also oh, my okay. friends didn't live close they weren't neighborhood friends some part of the reason um my friend group became my friend group is because our parents knew each other um, they grew up together and went to school together. So that was part of how I, I um, came to have this particular friend group. Uh-huh. So, I mean, your friends might have been two miles away. That's right, right, exactly. So a bike wouldn't even have really That's made a difference. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you're not sure. You want to go to college. Yeah. Maybe medicine, because you're going to college, and medicine is like a big achievement, so maybe that's the thing to do. Exactly. But when, So you went to William & Mary. I did. Right? Yeah. Um, great school. So you must have done well in high school, yeah? Yeah, I did. I think I graduated... I know, fourth or fifth in my class, something yeah. like that. So you get to school, mm-hmm. and then when, what, what happens? As far as your thoughts of what you might major in, what, are, what your career might be, what you're going to get out of this education while you're there. Yeah, I th- you know, I think I can sort of tell you my autism journey, but also just my general journey. Women Mary was very different for me, coming from a very small town. So, you know, there are some people who were, I don't know, maybe what you would call sort of middle class, upper middle class. But women was the first time I was was exposed to real wealth. So a lot of the folks who go there from Northern Virginia, um, they went to very elite private schools, private schools where you don't have class rankings because everyone goes to sort of off to Harvard or Yale and they actually felt like they hadn't been successful because they ended up in Women Mary versus mm-hmm. Princeton. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had those kind of folks, but it was also the first time I was exposed to black wealth. So one of my closest friends, both his parents were um, medical doctors. They were mm-hmm. urologists and, and radiologists. Um, and so that was very different for me. So just seeing sort of that exposure to folks who had grown up very differently than I had, and it was intimidating to some degree. So it's one of those times you're a question, how did I end up in this space and should I be in this space? So that was part of my my journey there. What I've told this story before, but how I ended up in autism is sort of just strange. I was taking an abnormal psychology 
course and there was a paragraph about autism and I do not I cannot answer the question what it was about that paragraph that mm. sparked an interest in autism but something about it did and I searched online this was before Google so however we searched then and what popped up likely because of proximity um, to the state of North Carolina was a summer camp that's organized by the Autism Society of North Carolina called Camp Royal. Yep. And I applied to be, um, to do a, a summer, to be a camp counselor there for huh. a summer. Um, and got accepted and came down to Pittsburgh, North Carolina. And it was just one of those experiences where people either said, I'm going to do this forever or I'll never do it again. Because we were young college students for most of us, it was sort of our first real exposure to autism. It was 10 weeks. We work with people of all ability levels, all ages. Mm. My very first week that summer, um, I my first camper was an adult. He was non-speaking. He had a seizure disorder. Mm. He tried to engage in aggression. He tried to bite me. Um, he had a seizure and we had to bring him to UNC hospitals and he had a tantrum in the middle of the hospital because they, now I know the environment was so overwhelming. Right. But I was like, I think I'm going to do this rest of my life. And so it was something about that 10 weeks for me that made me decide to keep pursuing this. All right. So two things I want to ask about. One is yeah. go, go back to you arriving to college and you, yeah. you come across wealth for the first time, including black wealth. Yeah. And you, you have this moment where you're like, I don't, am I, am I supposed to be part of this? Right. I, I don't have the background. I don't, you know, I didn't go to private school, maybe didn't have AP classes. I don't know. Yeah. But obviously you overcame that. And I'm, I'm sort of curious how you did and how long it took before you realized, no, I am supposed to be here in this, at this university. Yeah. That, oh, that's a, that's a really good question. I think part of it is I started to do well. So I taught, started to take, other than chemistry, I was doing well in, in my other classes. Um, I also think that part of belonging was finding spaces where I felt safe. So connecting with other black students on campus um, and forming a network and camaraderie um, and us having sort of that shared experience of being at a predominantly white institution. And I realized that even those black folks who had come from privileged backgrounds uh -huh. were having similar feelings. Uh -huh. And that it was not unique to me simply because I didn't grow up with the same opportunities uh, that some of them did. And so just having that sort of those discussions and those honest conversations sort of helped me get to a place of acceptance. It's sort right? of like it's it's not just me. It's not just other me. people feel this way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Especially okay. people of color. Yeah. 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 So then the second thing is. The way you just described this, so you go to this camp, you're 10 weeks there, one of the people that you're working with is an adult, so, I mean, maybe physically larger than you, I don't yeah, know, no. tries to bite you, you go to a hospital with that person, they have a tantrum. I think that would turn off a lot of people, and yeah. probably did, Yeah. but it didn't turn you off, and I'm curious if you've thought about what, why. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was just such a fascinating experience. I had never... To my knowledge, I had never met an autistic person. Now, I may have, but right. I just didn't know. Right. But to my knowledge, that was the, um, the young man's name was Cliff. Cliff was the first autistic person I had met, and, ha and that was, I spent a week with him. You know, I wish I could spend a week with him again because there's so much now I know that I could have done better. Like, the trying to bite me was my fault yeah. around communication um, and, and his ability to express his wants and needs to me and me not understanding, right? 
because he was non-speaking. Um, so there's so much I learned, but it was all it was the culmination of the experiences too, because I got to meet so many people were um, who who were there, including what they used to do is have in those days at least is have some of the clinical psychology interns who are working at the TEACH program, which is a statewide program for people with autism in the state of North Carolina. They would come out and sort of provide advice to the counselors, give us some guidance during the week. And so I met some of those folks and talked to them about, you know, their experiences to teach and what they were trying to do in the state um, to meet the needs of autistic people and their families. And just just the fascination of working with autistic people, hearing what was going on in the state of North Carolina. Maybe part of it too was not knowing what I really wanted to do after mm-hmm. I graduate. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed to provide me like a pathway. Like, oh, why don't I get into autism and study mm-hmm. autism, given that I've had this experience that I've personally enjoyed, even if other if everyone didn't. Uh, so maybe it also just provided me like a direction, a little mm. bit of here's what I here's something I could pursue and do after I graduate from college, which yeah. I ended up doing. <laughs> what, what what year was uh, what year of college did you do this? So counseling? I this was nineteen summer of nineteen ninety seven, and I was actually graduating a semester early. I was going to be graduating in December. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I graduated in three and a half years because I actually did take sort of um, AP courses and I had. Um, sort of college credit going into um, William & Mary. So I was able to graduate a semester early. Okay, after. so then we, right after this, you graduate and you yeah. go, okay, what's my next step? And what was your next step? How did you, if you want to get in this field, what did it take to get into the field? Yeah, so I have an interesting journey then. I, I shared this at the annual TEACH conference. So I talked to one of the psychology interns from TEACH and I said, I think I want to keep doing this. I'm going to be graduating in December. Um, and I think I want to keep working in autism. And she said, you should reach out to Gary Mezaboff, who at the time was the director of the Teach Autism Center. I had no idea who Gary Mezaboff was and what he meant to the field of autism. Uh, but when I got back to William Mayor, I decided to call him and I left a message. Actually, his secretary um, answered the phone. You just so, looked him up, got his number. Yeah, I got his number. Yeah. His executive assistant answered the phone, said he's not in, but you can leave a voicemail message. Gary Mezboff called me back and to some degree kind of interviewed me on the phone. I think I may have come to Chapel Hill for a little visit, but he kind of just hired me. He was like, you know, um, at the time, the person I ended up working with was Nancy Reikley, who um, passed away from cancer. She ended up being my mentor. Um, She had a grant with someone at UNC and the person who was working on the grant as a research assistant had left, and so they sort of had this funding to some degree um, for someone to help work on that grant. But I, I he hired me essentially to hmm. in part work on that project and gave me this. I had a title of pre-doctoral intern at Teach, and I did all these things. I worked in the Teach preschool. I worked at the residential program that they operate at Teach. I worked for the Autism Society of North Carolina Day Program. I did adult social skills group. He just allowed me to make of the experience what I wanted. And I did that for like I, almost two years. I worked in an inclusive preschool. Really, Gary just created this experience for me. Um, he does not, I had a conversation with him years ago. Uh, he has he had no recollection <laughs> of doing oh, really? this. I was like, Gary, you're really you're responsible for my career. You took this chance on me, like 
without really knowing me and just created this opportunity. So, I mean, because I know you go away and you go get more education and come back, but yeah. when you came back, he had no idea who you were. He, so he, he remembered I mean, who I was, but he did not remember that he had sort of opened, hired me. Open this door. Yeah, yeah open yeah. the door for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that way. Uh, but he also labeled you as pre-doctoral, right? It's, it's almost like, well, that's what you're going to do. Right. And right. You, you did. Is that why? No, no. At the time, I did not know I was going to go on and get a PhD. The reason I ended up getting a PhD, my PhD is in special education. Um, so I ended up working at the Teach Preschool. And we also, I was the, ended up being the assistant teacher. Uh-huh. Actually, this is also a story. So... I worked there for both years of my internship. The The first year I was an assistant teacher um, and the, the the current teacher left. She sort of retired, um, stopped teaching at the Teach Preschool. She had been there for a while and they had hired someone else to, you know, become the new teacher the yeah. next year. I showed up to the office because we're, I think it's like two or three days before we're expecting kids to show up. Mm-hmm. And there's a voicemail from the new person, the new teacher they had hired, who said, I actually don't think I want this job. And so we're going to have kids showing up, and there's no teacher. <laughs> now, teachers sort of privately run. It's not a public. It, they had a private preschool, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, so you didn't necessarily need a teaching license. And so someone said to me, do you want to be the teacher? I was like, I don't think I can be the teacher. It's like, fine, someone do. But... Uh, we had someone fill in who was a doctoral student in the education program at UNC Chapel Hill who had been a teacher. And she came and filled in for a few weeks with me um, until we hired to to get started. But exposure to her, her name was Lori Sperry. So hi, Lori, if you ever listened to this. Um, Exposure to her and just seeing the work she was doing and how she was able to step in and work with kids and the applied work she was doing, the exposure um, to her and the t- in that teach preschool is sort of what really led me to go on to get my master's degree and then my, my PhD. So it was just an interesting time to some degree. We oh. actually ended up starting a program for two-year-olds, and this was the late 90s uh-huh. where we weren't diagnosing a ton of two-year-olds you know, yeah. with autism. So. I, I like that they sort of looked around the room and like, well, do you want to teach? <laughs> do you want to be the teacher? <laughs> You're standing here, so you must be the one. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, you, you got a master's at UVA. Yeah. And, and did you was the plan just to get that master's and roll it right into a PhD program? No. The what plan happened? was to go teach in public schools. Ah, okay. To get more experience. And what... And you know, some a lot of things, as they say, right, are are just a product of timing and luck. Um, what happened is that the University of Virginia hired someone, a faculty member, from the University of Florida. Um, her actual background was reading and, and disability, not not related to autism at all. Um, kids with learning disabilities, um, but she knew of my interest in autism, and she said you know, I really think you should just go on and get your PhD. I have a colleague at the University of Florida, and she has a grant related to autism, and I think you'd be Mm. a great doctoral student for her. Uh, And she has funding available. And I did want to go back and get a PhD, so that had been part of the plan. But I thought was to teach for a couple years, get some experience, more experience, actually being the lead teacher under my belt, and then go on to get my PhD. But this sort of opportunity presented itself where there's funding. I ended up talking to this person, Maureen Conroy, who was my doctoral mentor. Um, 
And so it sort of worked itself out. So I ended up applying and just going directly into mm. my PhD program. You did, okay. Yeah, yeah. With the idea then being that you would actually focus on autism when you're out or, or no? Yes, yes, you, that yes. That was the plan. Yeah, okay. that was the plan. That so was then, the plan. I don't know, four years of PhD? More? Uh, no. Actually, I, I did it in three and a half years. Three and a half, okay. Mm. When you get out, yeah. what did you do? When I, when I finished my PhD, I ended up coming back to UNC to do a postdoc. That's it, okay. Yeah, and actually Gary Mesbob was also responsible for that. He does remember the postdoc. So he connected me to my, who, um, Grace Spiranek, who's my primary postdoctoral mentor, uh-huh. who was doing research around sensory experiences of, of um, young autistic children. Because my dissertation had been focused on repetitive behavior. Uh, and so I also ended up working a lot with Jim Bodfish, who was there at the time, who developed the repetitive behavior scale revised. He yeah. was at UNC at the time. And so to some degree, there was sort of postdoc co-mentors, um, but Grace Baranek was my primary mentor. But Gray, Gary connected me to Grace, and we ended up meeting at a conference and sort of discussing and talking about a postdoc, and I ended up getting a postdoc with her. Okay, so yeah. then I think you stayed you stayed at Chapel Hill, and you got a tenure-track position here, I think, or you know you were tenured here. Yeah, I, I was. Um, after my postdoc, um, I moved actually to Frank Porter Graham, right. where we're Where we sitting now, now yeah. Frank Porter Graham, uh, because again, timing and luck, um, Sam Odom had been, um, was hired to be the director mm-hmm. of Frank Porter Graham. Uh, I had expected after my postdoc that I'd have to leave, because you often don't get to stay in the same place when you finish your postdoc. Um, but I had gotten to know Sam through my, men- my doctoral mentor, Maureen, when I was in graduate school. And when he came here, he said, are you interested in staying? Actually, the University of Florida tried to hire me back. Mm. So I thought I was going to go back to the University of Florida for a faculty position. But Sam came and said, are you interested in staying? If so, I could negotiate um, a, a place for you at FPG as part of my startup package. And that's what he did. So I worked at FPG for a couple years. So completely soft money funded. So most people here are funded through grants. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I did my postdoc with Grace in the occupational therapy department in the School of Medicine. And a faculty, faculty position opened up there and they sort of recruited me onto faculty. So I was there as an assistant and then tenured associate professor in the department of occupational therapy at UNC. When you had these two options, Florida's trying to hire you back yeah. and then Chapel Hill was also like, do you want to stay here? How did you weigh those two? Yeah, it was that was actually pretty easy to weigh. I mean, the only thought was, Oh, soft money versus a hard line to your track position. Right. But the autism research infrastructure is just was then and still was just wonderful at UNC. Just the number of autism researchers, the breadth of research that was here, I just knew it would be a better place to launch my career as an autism researcher. So that was really the reason that I, primary reason I stayed. The other reason was I was close to my family. Yeah. So we're all East Coasters. All my siblings live between Maryland and Georgia. So it also allowed me to stay close to my family. Yeah, Florida would have been, you'd have been almost the outlier all the yeah, way down there. Yeah, that's right, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so early on, repetitive behaviors, sensory issues. You're looking at that. Yep. When, uh, well, just take me through some of your early research then, I guess. Yeah, so a lot of the early research was sort of, um, Grace was doing sort of um, 
longitudinal descriptive studies around sort of looking at the development of sensory experiences in young kids with autism. So I did some work related to that, looking at the relationship between sensory and repetitive behaviors. Um, I did some measured development work with, with Jambodfish. And then the other part of my portfolio, because of SAM that developed around the same time, was school-based intervention right. research. So how do we really support teachers in their implementation of, sort of effective practices for autistic children in their classrooms. So those are sort of the two bodies of work that I was really doing at the time. So these are these are for teachers who had autistic children in their classrooms or the entire class was autistic children or both? I both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. So both yeah. inclusive environments as well as sort of um, self-contained classrooms that were primarily serving children with autism or children with disabilities. So you were you were devising interventions that may help the teachers. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, it was really to um, it was really devising interventions that teachers could implement, right, to support the the learning and development of autistic children. And so, you know, a lot of that work though is about how you train teachers to deliver what are evidence-informed practices. So that was a, a lot of my time. Mm. But I'm curious, like, how you came up with those interventions. Yeah, so there were actually a couple things that were happening. One, we were studying existing practices teachers were already using. So we were getting a sense of that, like, what led to improved outcomes. So we did a study around Teach had a Teach developed sort of an intervention called structured teaching mm-hmm. um, that was used a lot in public school classrooms around the country. Um, and we sort of looked at that as well as a, a preschool model called LEAP, which is um, for autistic children served in inclusive classroom programs. So we looked at existing practices. We actually, um, one of the interventions I ended up helping to develop was called Advancing Social Communication and Play, which is based on Connie's work, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, and so that sort of really informed by current science, but also we spent a lot of time doing focus groups with um, teachers as well as related service providers. So speech-language pathologists and occupational therapists to understand what were their needs. Um, so that's sort of my interest in community-engaged um, research or community partner research as well. Um, so listening to them and understanding really what would be helpful for you in teaching young autistic children and how can we best deliver that information to you. And so we learned a lot from just those focus groups and listening mm-hmm. sessions. And that helped to, um, we use that information to help develop or further develop the ASAP intervention. Okay, so yeah. you spent about, I guess, 15 years or so at UNC in the first I run? I think about 13 years. 13, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, what led to the move to Kansas? Oh, gosh. That's a really, really good question. So I was at an event, a 50th, was it 50th anniversary event for Frank Porter Graham? I do believe it was. Um, some folks, uh, the, the current director, um, or the director at that time of a program called the Juniper Gardens Children's Project. Him and his wife were both scientists. They're early childhood researchers. In the field were there, and they, and um, this man's name is, is Charlie Greenwood. He said to me, I'm thinking about stepping down as director, and you, I think you'd be great to replace me. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> now, I had a leadership position. I was associate chair for research in the Department of Health Sciences, yeah. which is where occupational therapy was um, was so Juniper Gardens, like Frank Portagram, just to give a little backstory, 
are centers that to some degree arose out of Lyndon Johnson's war and poverty movement. They're both um, formed around the mid 1960s, mm -hmm. really to think about how we can develop programs, policies, and practices to help children in poverty, to break the cycle of, of poverty. Um, and Juniper Gardens was one of those places that was really formed in part through community activism and large of black people who lived in Kansas City, Kansas, mm -hmm. who wanted to improve educational outcomes for their kids. Um, but one of the things that really, one of the reasons I decided to apply for the job and end up, ended up accepting the job is that Juniper Gardens, like Frank Porter Graham, a lot of the early research was based on primarily black children who lived in poverty. Um, Frank Porter Graham is known for the Abyssidarian project that mm -hmm. led to sort of um, what we know about the importance of high quality early childhood classrooms and how that leads to long-term outcomes, improve long-term outcomes for children. But a lot of the early work was based on black children lived in poverty, but these institutes and centers had never had or really a person of color leading them. And I think sometimes it's important that leadership reflects the communities they're serving. Yeah. And I was in a position to be able to step into that role. And me accepting that is one of the few times where it wasn't just about my career, but really what I thought was an important message to the field, to the broader field of early child, not specific to autism, around having people of color uh, in these kinds of leadership positions and opportunities, in particular, when the work of that place is focused, primarily built upon um, sort of research that has primarily focused on underrepresented and minoritized communities. And so that was part of the reason. And also I knew some of the, I knew a number of the people there, they were a wonderful group of folks. And so variety, but just having a leader of color was one of the main reasons I decided to take a chance and moved to the Midwest and never lived in the Midwest before yeah. and decided to do it. Yeah. yeah. So do you, do you think that that was part of the reason why you were recruited, though? Because, you know, look, you've got this data set that's based on black children and there isn't a black person running this and maybe there, there should be. Maybe. I mean, you know, this was prior to, to George Floyd. Yeah. I mean, that happened afterwards. Um, but I, just, just knowing those folks and who they are and their own belief system, that, that may have been a factor that wasn't communicated to me, but that may have been a factor in their thinking as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so then, so I, this is quite a move. I mean, this is, as you said, you just said earlier, you cl close to your family on the East Coast, yeah. and suddenly this is not gonna be close to your family. Yeah. So how did you, um, I mean, what, what did your family say when you said, I'm headed out to Kansas? Uh, they were in disbelief, in particular my parents. They couldn't believe that I was going to move out uh, to the Midwest. But like everything with my parents, they were really supportive Support, yeah. and, and happy. Neither of them really liked to fly. So actually, none of my brothers or my parents ever came to visit me in the Midwest. I think they really always thought that I moved back at some point. Uh -huh. uh, and they were just waiting you out. They were waiting me out to some degree, so no one actually came to visit, at least not my family. But they were really, they were supportive of me, of me um, taking this on. So. And then when you actually get there, 
I mean, the Midwest is notorious for being quite polite. I think that's probably, at least on the surface, I think that was probably the case. I don't know. How Did you feel welcome there? How'd it go? I actually did. And I would say there's something to those Midwestern values and yeah. niceness that was truly real. Uh, it it feels culturally different than the South, than what I'm used to. But I did feel welcomed. I formed a community of friends. Um, Juniper Gardens was a wonderful place to work and a wonderful group of colleagues to have and place to lead. And so I I enjoyed the work um, that I was doing there. And I was sad when I had to make the decision to, to, to leave. But I actually did, for the most part, enjoy living there. I did always think eventually I'd get back to the East Coast. Mm. I didn't plan to move back so soon. Um, but I knew it wasn't like my permanent home, but I, I enjoyed my time there while yeah. I was there. It, it wasn't your permanent, it was a home, it wasn't yeah. your permanent home. Yeah. 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 What was your research there? What did you do at Juniper Gardens? Yeah. So I was doing sort of, you know, a lot of the intervention work that, um, on autism that I was doing at UNC, sort of continuing it there. That was when I really got into sort of the, the outcome measurement work as well. But what really happened um, was George Floyd. And then um, Peter Mundy was the president of NSAR at the time. And he reached out to me to ask me to write a statement for NSAR on Black Lives Matter, why the Black Lives Matter should move, a movement should matter, we should think about that within the context of autism. And I, I had to sit with it for a little bit. You know, what do I say? Uh -huh. um, how do I approach this? Um, so it was it was sort of like whatever you want to say. Yeah. Just say it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now you know. I mean, you had to w decide whether you're going to accept it or not. But also, what would you say? Given what would this platform? I say? Right. Yeah. And so I wrote the statement. Um, but after I wrote the statement, I really had to sit with myself because I I said. I'm not doing research on black autistic people or black caregivers. This hasn't been my line of research. So even though I'm a black person in the field of autism, I felt a bit inauthentic because mm. I wasn't doing that work. And so I began to really shift my work a little bit um, to more specifically focus on sort of um, black autistic people or at least marginalized communities within autism. Because um, I also thought I occupy a position in the field. I'm, you know, for lack of, of a <laughs> better term, I'm one of the, you know, sort of known black scholars yeah. in the field. And probably because people remember me because there aren't a ton of black faces yeah. that they see at conferences. Um, and so I thought I'm in a position to really give some voice to this. Um, and I've been asked to write this statement, so I should continue this line of research. So it was during that time at, at Gender Gardens that I began to sort of shift my research to really focusing on underrepresented and minoritized communities as well. So two things. Um, I actually went looking for this statement, but I couldn't find it anywhere. What, what did you say? Oh, gosh, I have to recall what I said, actually. It should still exist somewhere, so I have to remind, I have to pull it for you. Yeah. But really, it was just talking about why this kind of movement should even matter within autism, right? There are black autistic people exist, and we shouldn't expect that they're able to separate their experiences with race and racism in America from their experiences with disability, that there's intersection. 
um, and then we should recognize the intersection and, and those experiences that I they're having it. racialized experiences as well. Right, I get it. So you're, yeah. you're that, this is your statement, and you're saying, but that's not the work I'm doing. Right. Right. Yeah. So then you began to do that work. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I read someplace that, and I can't remember where, but that you had said something like, the things you were hearing from caregivers or from black autistic people themselves were not the things that you were seeing in the research. Yeah. And you, you were like, well, that needs to change. Yeah. A couple of things happened. And one of those things happened before I even moved to the University of Kansas. I was part of a research study, and I've told this story before as well. Um, and it was sort of a, as part of the research study, we were running parent education groups. We were, st we were studying an intervention, actually, um, for toddlers. Um, but I was leading this parent education group as part of this intervention study on behavior management. And it was a room of about five parents, um, four, four white women, mm -hmm. and one black man, I do believe was the, was the size of the group. And we were talking about behavior management and sort of how you address some of these issues. I was giving the standard spiel because it was a randomized trial. I gave the standard spiel to everyone. And then parents were able to talk about sort of behavioral issues their children were experiencing and sort of get advice. And the black man said to me, he was talking about how when he takes his child in the store, that his child, there's a tantrum because he thinks he's always going to get something new. Mm -hmm. And I'd heard this before. And so a standard recommendation is, um, well, maybe have the child take something with them that they can only take with them when they go to stores. So something they of, can occupy yeah, and like a treat, a treat with them and something they can carry with them yeah. into the store so they don't think they're going to get something new. And he just paused and he looked up at me across. He was sitting across the table. And I'll never forget the look on his face. And he just said, you know I can't do that because they'll think I stole something. If the kid is carrying if something, the kid is carrying something. through the register That's yet. right, right. Yeah. And yeah. he's bringing something into the store. And I said, and I didn't say anything. I said, I think I just stopped. But I was like, oh my God, if, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've been followed in stores. I've had that experience of being a black person in America. And I think that he only felt safe to share that story because I was a black person leading oh, yeah. the group. And he didn't have to say any more. <laughs> he said, I can't do that. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. I need him to elaborate on the reason. And so that story stuck with me. Um, and sort of, and the other thing that then happened was I was contacted by Camille um, Proctor, who runs The Color of Autism. Um, and so, uh, and so her, my interactions and experiences with her also led me into this space. So, yeah. This, so this, this man says this to you and you think oh we are giving out advice to the group as if it applies to everybody and it doesn't yeah. or, or it can't apply to some of these people and no one really knows we're handing this information out as if it's applicable to everybody and it isn't that's that right. has to change that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's uh oh, no wonder that stuck with you forever yeah it really did it really did so how did you what have you been doing since then to sort of like fix that yeah 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 so now, I've been doing some work in partnership, as I said, with Camille Proctor, The Color of Autism. Um, some, some of it just out of service um, to sort of how we can think about better supporting um, black families of autistic children. So I 
co-led a um, virtual support group for black fathers of autistic children. I did it for like over a year, probably almost two years. Um, and I started it with a grandfather um, of an autistic um, adolescent. And I ended up and we started leading the group and running the group. And I sort of, I ended up stepping away because I'm not, one, I'm not a parent mm -hmm. in, in, at all. And so obviously then I don't have autistic children. And I felt like the group should be led by some, by the fathers, because we had created a community and it was a really well-functioning group. And, and so uh, a black dad, an autistic um, um, young man, ended up taking over the group. And the wonderful thing is that a group of them have started a podcast and they just interviewed me for the podcast. It, so it's just amazing to see how it's growing. They told me to show back up to the group because I told them why I left. Like, I started to feel like it wasn't a space for me because they were having real deep conversations about what parenting. about parenting yeah, yeah. and being a black male raising a black autistic child in America. Yeah. yeah. But they were like, "Come back, because we we we'd love to have you." Um, but just seeing them now branch off and do this podcast. And What's the do, name of the podcast? Oh, I have to look it up. I can't okay. recall off the top I'll, of my I'll head. I, I have subscribed to it, but and there, uh, my interview should be coming out shortly. But it, it was just amazing to see like that that growth so there there were those 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 just kind of service experiences like what can we do to build community um have been one thing and then we've been have been trying to do some research so you know camille and i have been trying to do some work together and then i have a grant under review which i hope will get funded it's on its second submission we got a good score the first time through the national institutes um, of health um, through nih where it's more specifically focused on black families mm. of, of autistic individuals with a colleague of mine here at UNC who studies racial equity in general. And so I've been trying to really think about the science of this work, but also how I just be of service. And so as, and the other thing I share with you is I recently formed the Black Empowerment and Autism, Autism Network. Network. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, well, let's let's talk about that, yeah. right? So I, I looked at that. Um, you just had your first sort of like, I'm going to call it a meeting, right? Your yeah. first gathering. There were yeah. maybe like 20 people yeah. there up and down the East Coast. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember. Was there someone from the West Coast? Yeah, right? West Coast, Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. right. Um, and the idea is sort of to promote connections, community, support, right? All those things. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's okay. Just sort of tell me about why you founded that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, well, likely because of to some degree the, the position I occupy in the field I had was increasingly having a number of um, black scholars in the field um, reach out to me those who were early in their career for just advice and guidance mm. um, and I also had a so a separate conversation with David Mendel. I think he had sent some people my way um, just because he thought they could get good advice and mentorship from a black scholar in the field um, and I thought Gosh, I'm I'm hearing from these folks who are out there who are interested in connecting. What can I do to help connect those of us in the field who are black who are trying to operate in the research space? And so I partnered with a couple of folks, um, a colleague of mine, Jamie Pearson in North Carolina Central, and Nigel Pearson North Carolina Central, and we just started having some meetings about 
what could we do? What kind of space could we create to connect some of the black scholars we knew who were doing autism research? And so we started having monthly virtual meetings mm. related to what is now the Black Empowerment and Autism Network. And it really just started snowballing around, I know these people, I know this other person, and just started inviting others to join. I actually just got off a beam call, and now we're up to like 35 people mm. who are doing wonderful work in the field. And so we're thinking about how do we support you know, black autistic people and black caregivers of autistic people. How do we do that? Um, how do we provide voice? There is a black autistic researcher in the group as well, because we want to honor the lived experience of yep. those um, um, black autistic people as well. Um, we like to have more, but there are at least one in the group. Yeah. But we've been we're really organize us are organizing ourselves and really think about how we create space and voice. Uh, for this particular group and and really how we can be of service to others is part of what we're thinking about in addition to articulating and hopefully advocating for a research agenda focused on sort of black families so the acronym is bean the acronym is yeah BEAN. i i i thought i came up with that to remember it myself but yeah. that's a it's a good acronym yeah um but so let me ask you said earlier that people obviously remember you because you may be the one black face that they know in this space yeah. so how do we get more African-Americans or blacks into this space. And, I, and by that, I mean really in academia. And, you know, the pipeline for PhDs is, I, I can't remember what it is, it's something like 5 or 6% of PhDs that go out every year to go to the African-American community or black community. And we, we need to get that higher. And so how is that done? I wondered what your thoughts were on it. Yeah, I think that's the, you know, the, the real question here, and the overriding question to some degree, and, you know, we've been talking about this as well within the group is how do we really grow the pipeline right. to help diversify the, the, the scholars in the field. You know, getting people experiences early on, um, I think in middle school, high school, when people are beginning to think about uh, sort of career pathways, because some people just don't realize what's an actual opportunity. What yeah. would this look like? to study autism? Um, what does it look like to be a scholar in the field or to have these different pathways, to be a speech pathologist or a clinical psychologist or a special educator or whatever it is to contribute to autism in different ways? So how do we start earlier um, growing the pipeline? I think hopefully another thing that we're trying to do is how do we establish sort of mentoring networks where there are mentors of color so you, that representation yeah. uh, sort of matters. So they can see people who are, look like them doing the work and being successful in this space, um, I think is also important. Um, but, you know, I also don't think it's, it's easy, right? I mean, there are lots of challenges and roadblocks um, that we put into place um, that affect people's ability to get into the field. And, and in broader academia, to be retained in the field, what we exactly. often see with yeah. um, scholars of color and particular black faculty, is they don't make it much past uh, sort of becoming an associate professor. They sort of drop off at some point. And so what is it about being in academia that leads to burnout or fatigue and people wanting to, to leave? And that thing you mentioned earlier, too, is, is someone will get to college or get to a, t a, a PhD program, look around and go, am I supposed to be here? Yeah. There's no one else here that looks like me. And yeah. that drain, that's like an emotionally draining thing to have to put up with 
but that's something Bean is looking at, you're saying. Yeah, we're trying to think about ways to really diversify the field. Um, you know, one, <laughs> the fact that we've been able to find 35 black people out there doing autism research is, I, I didn't know that many of us existed yeah. <laughs> until I started Beam. Um, and so it's just been amazing to see the number of folks who are out there operating in the space in different ways. And we have folks who are developmental pediatricians, child neurologists, all the way to folks like me who are way on the more applied research side of things. So just having us and organizing us and putting us into one space has just been empowering, empowering, if I can talk at late in the day, for me and just realizing sometimes that there are more of us out there than I realize. Um, but how can we then galvanize this group yeah. to, to further grow the field? Yeah, uh, I think there's, yeah, there's like two things I want to ask you. Sure. And the first one is you mentioned George Floyd, right? And George Floyd happened, he's murdered by the police. This is in 2020. And as this happens, there's this like, America goes through this kind of like racial catharsis, this sort of racial reckoning. And I think almost everybody from the person who's driving the bus to managing the hedge fund and almost kind of no matter the colored skin has this like long look at themselves and what is happening in this country and where do we fit into this mess and what are we doing? And um, it sounds almost like you also had like a racial reckoning. You're sort of like, I used to be a, a man doing science and I'm doing science in this way, which is how it's done. But after that, you're like, no, I'm a black man doing science. And I can't divorce those two things. And I need to do research that sort of encompasses all the things that I bring to the table. Is that accurate? That is accurate. I, I think I really sort of asked myself, if not me, then who? Hmm. And we have a long history and research, as I alluded to, of people not looking like the community doing research on the community. Yep. And I was able to operate in this space and do work in this space and walk in a different path um, and make a decision, a conscious decision that I should not try to divorce these identities. I should embrace the fact that I'm a black man in autism research in academia. I occupy the status in the field. I can help sort of push forward a research agenda on black families and give voice and space to that. So why not embrace that? Um, and I would tell you, in my doctoral program, I actually did think about doing research on black families early on in my doctoral program. So there were two other um, black doctoral students in, in my program at the University of Florida in special education, not autism researchers, but they were um, more doing research on children with emotional and behavioral disorders. Mm -hmm. And so by and large, that population in schools is often black boys. Yeah, And so you had the two black scholars essentially doing research on on black children and i thought i really did think to myself like gosh it'd be are all the black people just going to do research on black people and so i actually made a conscious choice a little bit to not focus on black families of autistic children at the time yeah. and to keep pursuing my interests because i had an interest in repetitive behavior because of my experiences that that I had had in the teach preschool. So that was a real interest. But I did sort of think to myself at that time, did I do want to do research on black families? And I actively said no, because I didn't want to feel pigeonholed or feel mm. like I had to do go there or do that work. And so it, it was interesting that after George Floyd coming back to that that space but also I think I was able to come back to it because I was more established right and I was more 
you'd already shown that myself. you could do yeah. all this other research. Yes. Oh, right, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, because, it, yeah, you're, you're saying almost like, well, if I'm a black man doing this research on black people, because that's all I could or should do, maybe. It, right. But right. you've said, no, I've done lots of things, and this is where I want to spend my time, that's my right. efforts. That's yeah. right, yeah. Uh, well, maybe I have two more questions, actually. Sure, sure. Um, one is, I also read someplace that this is the happiest you've ever been doing your research now that you've sort of changed tacks like this. Is yeah, that right? Uh, yeah, I think it was a quote I may have, um, that may have been in Spectrum um, News at some point. Um, yes, and it's really true. Like, marrying my identities and being openly talking about my experiences as a black man, being able to do research on black families um, has allowed me to not feel like I'm living in separate worlds. And so it's allowed me to sort of reconcile my own identities, mm. my, both my personal and professional identity in some way. Um, and I didn't realize I would feel this way. Uh, and so really thankful to Peter <laughs> for asking me to, to write that statement because it really did make me sit and reflect on what I wanted to do with my career and how I most wanted to make an impact. Um, and, now, and now I I show up in spaces and I openly talk about the work I'm doing um, and that it's focused on black families. Um, and I, I, I now say that unabashedly yeah. um, because of where, where I am and, and because of this happiness that, I'm feel, that I feel being able to engage in this work. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. Um, and just a final thing, like, because uh, I, I, I think as we said, you, you as you were growing up, you couldn't imagine this would have been your career. No. And I feel certain that your parents wouldn't have imagined this career either. Right? No. So have yeah. you ever talked to them about like you know your mom's still in Broadnecks? Yeah. That this is your life. I mean, it must be astounding that this is your life. Uh, I, I don't know if we've had that conversation. I don't know if they fully under, you know, understand what it is I, I do being a professor because I, because I do administration now and I lead a research um, center, I don't do a lot of teaching because you know, I think they think of professors as you teach courses. Yeah, like you're standing that. in front of the Right, like right. that's all you do. So they know I do autism work. Um, so they, they're aware of that. And I now have um, uh, at least two cousins who are on the spectrum. And so my parents have talked to me about that uh-huh. um, and what that means. And they, so they know I'm operating in that space. They have asked, and I think they actually viewed a presentation I gave, because they know I travel a lot uh-huh. and give talks. So I think they watch one of those. And they, I remember actually they did talk to me about wanting to come and see me give a talk. I was like, you don't want to hear me talk about autism, like the most boring thing ever. But so I know they're proud and, and understanding in those ways. But it, being a professor is a weird thing to explain to anyone that's not in academia. Like, what is in the what in the hell do you actually do yeah. um, with your time? But in general, I know, yeah, they are sort of very proud of what I have been able to accomplish in yeah. general. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Well, thank you. How was that? Great interview, I thought. I'd actually spoken to Brian before um, while doing some reporting, and at the time I thought that he'd make for a good synaptic guest. And um, I was right. Great, great interview. So thank you, Brian, for having me into your office and for being a guest. 
Much appreciated. This podcast will be archived on spectrumnews.org, and Synaptic can be found wherever you find podcasts. Google, Spotify, YouTube, Apple, wherever. We're building a little archive of guests now. You'll find Connie Kasri in the archives. You'll find Ashura Buckley. Um, Kathy Lord is in there. All free. You can reach us on Twitter, where our handle is at Spectrum. Our theme song was written and performed by Chris Collinwood. Next episode will be out in a month on November 1st. That is it. This one is over, and I'll let the music play us out. Um, this is not a big deal, yeah. but I'm going to ask. If we turn off the overheads, would it be all right? Uh, no, no, no. Just, you can just pick up a little bit of a... Okay. Let's, let's yeah, see yeah. if that... Uh... Yeah, that did it. <laughs>